Thank you, Dan, choir and instrumentalists for beautiful worship this morning. And thank you, moms. I'm pretty sure none of us would be here without you. <laughs> I'll check, but I think. James chapter one this morning, James one. Darren Babcock was here uh, speaking to some men about his ministry in the Bonton neighborhood in Dallas. Darren is son to our members, Karen and Don. And if you don't know, God called him to move into one of the most poverty-stricken neighborhoods in Dallas. Violence, poverty, gang activity. Bonton, right south of downtown, got so bad that the police would basically not go there. The shops and stores closed down. The neighborhood became a food desert where the only place you could get food was the local liquor store. All of the grocery stores literally shut their doors. It was a three, still today, a three-hour bus ride to go to the grocery store. Residents literally living off of Hostess and Frito-Lay products. Now, I know for some people that's a dream come true, but, but really, if it's your only option, it's not. Darren said, well, I'm going to plant a garden at my house. And if you'll come work in the garden, you can have fresh produce, food. And people started doing it. They started working and, and having food there. And Darren had a community Bible study. He started, began seeing lives transformed. They started a lawn mowing business. And the city paid them to mow all the vacant lots and the abandoned homes in their neighborhood because no one else wanted to do it. They started a honey farm. Bonton honey is so good. Ask Karen. She said she'll have plenty stocked up after today. Darren was sharing this the other day in Amarillo, and I asked him specifically to talk about how they're seeing spiritual transformation in this neighborhood through their ministry. And his answer floored me. I, couldn't I still can't believe what he said. He said, in all my years of working in Bonton, the gang violence, the generational poverty, prostitution, 85% of men have been to prison in this neighborhood. 85%. He said, in all my years of working in Bonton, I have only met two people who said they were not Christians. Two. This should scare us to the core. Because we have to ask, is that same dynamic happening with me? What does it say that, in, that everybody thinks they are Christians in the place that even the police will not go? Today we come to the last in a, our four-part discipleship series. This series, uh, Dr. Barrett's vision for our Sunday school ministry. What does it mean to be Jesus' disciple? First, abiding in Christ, knowing him. Second, becoming his disciple, growing. Third, connecting with God's people, being a part of the community of faith. And finally today, doing. Action is a necessary outcome of our faith. Let's read together, if you would. Look at verse 2 with me. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Did you hear it? Blink and you'll miss it. But it's probably the key for understanding James' letter. The first truth I want to share this morning out of this book is that James is founded on the gospel. James is founded on the gospel, salvation by grace through faith. This whole letter keys in on when people have no good deeds, but say they're Christians. Still, he begins here by saying he is talking about the results of faith. Do you see that word there in verse 3? Faith. It's there again in verse 6. Believe it or not, 13 
times, this book that's known for good works teaching, uses the word faith 13 times. The fact that he cares so much about what goes along with faith shows that he very much cares about salvation by faith. He's just trying to correct a misunderstanding that goes along with it. When he sits down and dips his quill in the ink and puts it to paper, he has loaded both barrels, not with buckshot, but with lazy Christian shot. Lazy Christian shot. He is taking aim. The second truth this morning, James corrects the antinomian ditch. There are two great ditches we can slide off into as we walk on God's good gospel road. The gospel is the good news that Jesus has substituted himself in our place. In our sin, our bad deeds, not just the things we've done wrong, but the sin nature that causes those wrong things. And in our sin, we deserved death. But Jesus in his great mercy came to take our place on the cross, dying and rising again. And if we believe in him by faith, we can have eternal life, forgiveness of sin, and abundant life now. That's the gospel. If you can imagine walking with Jesus as we we walk with the gospel, it's continually correcting who we are, and we're on his road. There are two ditches we can fall into. When Amy and I were just dating, I went to California to start seminary without her. We were just dating, and she, uh, I, she still had college left to do. She thought I had left her. It was really emotional. It was tough times. But I knew I was smitten with her. We missed each other terribly. Well, I came home one time on spring break, and there was this big snow. When I came home, uh, it was one of those beautiful ones that really covered everything. Everything was white. My folks still lived in Canyon and Amy's in Amarillo, and I was not going to let those 15 miles keep me from seeing her. So I jumped in my mom's 4x4 yellow Nissan Xterra and headed off to Canyon. Drive wasn't too bad. The road crews had been working. When I hit the highway, it was dry, you know, like it often is. And arrive at Amy's house, no problem. We're having a great time until my mother-in-law says, hey, I need to go to the store. And I pop up and say, oh, the roads are great. I'll take you. I've got a 4x4. We go to the store and on the way back, we're looking at these side ditches out in the country, deep white drifts, all untouched, glistening snow, so pretty. And of all people, my sweet mother-in-law starts nudging me, Reed, drive in the ditch, let's play. (laughs) And she gets more persuasive, oh, come on, you're in an Xterra, Reed, come on, try it. I knew I shouldn't do this. I had these little alarms going off in my mind. Don't do it. Don't do it. The problem was the people's voices in the car were louder than those little voices in my head. My girlfriend at the time joins in the front. Come on, Reed. So I drive like six inches in the ditch and back onto the road. Well, that just made it worse. What was that? Are you scared? This is an off-road machine. Let the beast free. I'm so weak. I gave in, went all the way down in the ditch. We went about 20 yards and it was like we slammed into a brick wall of snow. I mean, at least two feet of snow were in that bar ditch. We were high centered, all four tires were up off of the ground. I'm immediately frustrated. This is not my car, we're out in the country. What am I gonna do? And for the first time, the girls in the car were strangely quiet. (laughs) My mom is here today and I never told her this story. Happy Mother's Day, mom. 
My sweet mother-in-law is here today too. I told you I would tell on you someday. <laughs> Happy Mother's Day. This great cowboy comes by and he's kind of looking at me like, really? You thought you could drive in the bar ditch in your pretty little yellow Xterra? He pulls us out and, and no one knew about this until today. Life in the ditch is not fun. Have you ever felt like you are just stuck in a ditch? The mud and the muck, the deep snow, you can't go anywhere. Tertullian was one of the early church fathers. He noticed really early on in Christianity that people tend to fall away from the gospel in one of two ways. He wrote this, just as Jesus was crucified between two thieves, so the gospel is ever crucified between two errors. So what are these ditches, these two errors? We could call them by different names, but really the same thing, religiosity or irreligion, legalism or antinomianism, moralism or relativism. On the one side, moralism, legalism, religiosity. This corruption of the gospel says we have to live up to God's standard to be loved by him. I have to practice my own spiritual to-do list to be right before God. The Bible often deals with the ditch of legalism. The Pharisees were stuck here. They abused a whole lot of God's people here. The Pharisees would hang these great weights of religious practice around people's necks and yet dismiss their own sin. They thought God accepted them by their good religious sacrifice, but God would tell them, no, I'm after your hearts. Jesus calls them whitewashed tombs. The power of the gospel corrects legalism. But legalism is not what James is aiming at. That's another sermon for another time. James is dealing with the other side, the opposite ditch. The relativists who say it doesn't matter what you do. Theologians call this antinomian. It just means anti-law. Like the law of God just doesn't matter anymore. This is as alive and well today as it was when James first put ink to paper. People become lazy in their faith thinking, ah, we're good. Antinomians, relativists say, Jesus has got this. I don't have to do anything. It doesn't matter. God's a God of love. It's all good. What's the problem with that? Well, James is watching this and he is frustrated. Because he knows how God cares deeply for what we do, how we act matters. In fact, God cares so much about what we do that he had to send his only son to a cross for what we have done. How we act matters. Just ask someone who's been abused. Ask someone whose spouse has been unfaithful. Jesus says not a jot or tittle of the law will pass away. Paul teaches in Galatians, the law is a guide for our behavior. It shows us the right way to go. Look at here in James 1 at verse 22. Prove yourselves doers of the word, not merely hearers who delude themselves. Or 21, the verse right before it, put away all this wickedness and filthiness and receive the word implanted. See that salvation by the word, Jesus. James says, if you say you're a Christian, but don't care about doing what's right, you are lying to yourself. 
verse 22, deluding yourself. Look down at verse 26. If anyone thinks him to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue, he deceives his own heart, lying again. Look at that last word. This man's religion is worthless. Worthless. Later he'll say faith without works is dead. James is founded on the gospel. He cares deeply for salvation by grace through faith, but he is correcting these folks who don't care to do anything in Christianity. Gospel corrects legalism, but it certainly corrects antinomian belief. Dr. David Garland gave a stinging sermon to Baylor these last two days at the graduation ceremonies. It was not your usual fun, good graduation speech. He called Baylor to realize when we say we have faith, then do whatever we want and don't care. It causes deep, irreversible damage. We hurt not only one person or ourselves, but we hurt thousands at Baylor. A whole institution is grieving. That's a perfect example. James says faith without works is a delusion. It's worthless. It's dead. The third truth I want us to see is the necessary outcome of faith in Jesus is action. Action. If there is no Christian ministry and mission in my life, the Bible would ask me, Reed, is your faith even real? Is it real? The fact that an entire Bonton neighborhood thinks it's Christian yet looks like death and destruction should make me wake up and say, now wait a minute. Is this dynamic happening in my life? Have I grown to not care? Have I resigned to thinking my actions in Christ don't matter? Am I just not noticing that I have mud and muck up to my neck in the ditch of antinomian behavior? This is the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. You would think if anyone was only about grace, it would be Martin Luther. But Luther was very aware of this ditch too and and warned against it. Luther's dicta was that we are saved by grace alone, but not by a faith that remains alone. We're saved by grace alone, but not by a faith that remains alone. His point was that salvation in no way comes through works, but gospel belief will always and necessarily lead to good works. Faith and works must never be confused with each other, but they must also never be separated from one another. I love Ephesians 2, for by grace you have been saved, not a result of works. And then I love it. It says, for we are God's workmanship created to do good works, not saved by works, created to do them though. We are made, Paul says, for ministry and missions. Man, is there every opportunity for ministry and missions here at First Baptist Church? Amazing people dedicated to loving the homeless, the orphan, the widow, the foreigner, teaching kids about ministry and missions. A a great guy came into the office this week interested in, in wanting to find a place where he can serve. And it was so fun for me to get to talk to him about the Men's Job Corps, the prison ministry, our disaster relief team, these manly outreaches that he was interested in. But on the other hand, some of you might say to me, Reed, you don't understand how busy I am. I just don't have time to do anything for the gospel. Yes, you do. 
No, Reed, I, I, you don't get it, Reed. I've got kids and soccer and baseball and civic work. I've got a job, man. So what you're telling me is you have prioritized other things above gospel ministry in your life. That's what it is. Let's just be honest about it. I'm speaking to myself too. We've got baseball and gymnastics. I'm finishing a degree. Oh Lord, please let it be my last degree. (laughs) Priorities mean I will make sure I do this thing and I'm going to put these other things down the line and maybe I get to them. Like changing the light bulb. I've got three, two are out. Hey, I don't care about that other one. I'll get to it later. Are we telling each other that we put sharing the gospel on par with changing out the burnt light bulb? But we do that, don't we? Mothers can be some of the best at living out their faith, can't they? My mom is here today, and I know of no one who did more for me growing up. She worked so hard to help me develop and grow. My wife is an incredible example of a godly woman who works hard for her family. Proverbs 31 woman, soccer mom, baseball mom, up early, giving all her of herself to her family and her job every day. But you know what? Along the way, as she journeys, she's asking, Jesus, this job is yours. Jesus, this family is yours. What do you want me to do today? Who do you want me to love along the way? It's doable. It's a light burden, Jesus says. James is warning about the ditches, but he's also inviting us to walk on the road of good works. Not because we legalistically have to, but because we're motivated by love and and grateful for all that Jesus has done for us. Have you ever been on just an amazing road trip? You got to see new things. You weren't in a hurry. You felt like you were exploring, just enjoying the road. The journey of walking in the gospel is meant to be like that road, not stuck in the ditch. Look at all we gain here in James by walking in the gospel. Our first reward is knowing our identity in Christ. Look at verse 23, our identity in Christ. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his face in a mirror. For once he's looked at himself and gone away, he's immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. If we don't try to obey, our Christian identity never takes over. This is why I've often heard people say, man, I didn't know God's word until I started teaching. And all of a sudden I've stepped out and began to do something in the name of Christ. And it was like he was taking hold of me. Same on mission trips. I I went to give something to those people over there, but I can't tell you how much it changed me. We gain our identity when we obey. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the, the German Christian pastor during the Nazi days, says this. When the Bible speaks of following Jesus, it is proclaiming a discipleship which will liberate man from all man-made dogmas, from every burden and oppression, from every anxiety. If they follow Jesus, men escape the hard yoke of their own laws and submit to the kind yoke of Christ. But does this mean we ignore the seriousness of his commands? Far from it. We can only achieve liberty and enjoy fellowship with Jesus when his command, his call to absolute discipleship is appreciated in its entirety. 
Bonhoeffer is saying you will never experience fullness in your identity with Christ, seeing how good he wants this thing called life for you until you step out in action and obedience. There's this dynamic tension at work here between God's perfect standard and God's perfect love. The standard of God never changes. Jesus says, be perfect as my Father in heaven is perfect. But the good news is that we'll never live up to that perfect standard, but God will always catch us and forgive us. And there's more grace and love than we could ever need. But then he calls us again after failure to keep striving, keep living up to the law. Our identity in Christ can only be found when we trust him enough to act on it. Second, by acting on our faith, we gain liberty. Look there at verse 25. But one who looks intently at the law, the law of liberty. When people slide off into either ditch, they find crushing bondage. On the moralistic side, perfectionistic tendencies become this prison that a person can never live up to their ideal. On the relative side, people just give up. Relativists often grew up in a home of a legalist. And they saw lived out this crushing weight of a burden that you can never live up to. And kids realize the truth. They say, I'm not trying that. I'm just going to do whatever I want. And they fly off the handle into addiction, drugs, alcohol. And guess what? They find the same exact prison. In either ditch, we are looking to ourselves to find justification. And either way, it all depends on me. And guilt begins pressing in. Fear of what people think of me presses in. Have you ever met a gorgeous, skinny person who thought they were ugly and fat? And no matter how many times you say, you're beautiful, you're skinny, they still see flaws in themselves. Why? Why won't they listen to you? Because you're not their standard. Perfection is their standard. They are looking at some ideal, some lie the world has given them about this is who you should be. When we simply follow Jesus, realizing we're called to perfection, but always safe in his arms, always forgiven, and we get this sense of this is why I'm created when we begin doing ministry. This call to action answers the big question of life. Why are we here? As long as I'm living selfishly, I'll never find out why God made me. Never. Because he made us, all of us, for others. When we start living for others, there is power, there's liberty from what anyone else thinks of us because we know what God thinks of us. And his smile is better than anyone's opinion, isn't it? When action accompanies our faith, we gain identity, freedom, and third, we gain blessing. Look at the end of verse 25 there. The law of liberty and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer. This man will be blessed in all he does. We gain our freedom. We gain blessing by God. We begin collecting friends, even fans, because God is using us to bless other people. And we know we didn't do anything, but they're seeing God's power work through us as conduits. Look at the last verse. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress. When Darren was first wrestling with his calling to Bonton, 
He was going once a week to Bible study there, and he talked to the leader, and he said, man, I don't think once a week's going to do it for these folks. They are living this 24-7, and the, and the leader was just really smart. He didn't shut him down. He said, okay, tell me more about that. He knew that God was calling Darren. Darren eventually sold his 4,000-square-foot house in Plano and literally bought the crack house in Bonton. All the copper piping had been ripped out. He began restoring it, planted a garden. One of the residents was talking to one of the other who asked uh, who lived in the old crack house. It's beautiful. I see it fixed up. There's this garden there. And the guy responded, Darren lives there. You know, the white guy. And the first guy's got, eyes got really big and he said, a white guy lives in Bonton? People go there today and they say, you don't recognize the neighborhood. The whole community has changed. Why? Because one person said, you know, I think God's calling me to do something here. And he did it. He did it. What's God calling you to do? One pastor in the 1800s who was involved in the abolition movement shared something that one of my Sunday school faithful members shared with me. It goes like this. He wrote this poem. I'm only one, but I am one. I can't do everything, but I can do something. The something I ought to do, I can do, and by the grace of God, I will. I am only one, but I am one. I can't do everything, but I can do something. And the something I ought to do, I can do, and by the grace of God, I will. Jesus moved into our neighborhood. He cared enough, and he acted. And God can offer you free salvation and a life of purpose because Jesus was faithful to his calling. What's God waiting on you to do? What's he waiting on me to do? Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, we come to your word today and we recognize as your community that we can't get around it. There's no denying it. Your people will always be a people of action. Oh, God, may we hear James' call today. May we obey. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.